I'm going to start a uh, new series called The Fellowship of the Holy. Fellowship of the Holy. We're going to talk about intimacy. Intimacy with God. Every few months, I like to bring us back to the point. And we constantly talk about uh, God's affections for us and our response to that and, and what it means to live in intimacy with God. We, that's, that's threaded through virtually every, uh, every one of our messages. But every, every uh, several months, every three, four, five months, I like to do a few sessions just focusing on the topic of God's love, his affections for us, his delight in us, to center us again. It can be so easy to get off of the point. And uh, I've come to realize that unless I am continually uh, bathing my soul in the message of God's affections and of his love, that I will, I will find myself living in ways that are not worthy of the Lord and worthy of his, uh, his love for me. It, it, I'll just find myself living out of the brokenness of, of my own heart because I live in a fallen world that beats against the truth of God's love always. I mean, it's always demanding us to perform, to be better, to look better, always giving us false, uh, false uh, standards of achievement that which, by which we, we seek after those things and, and not really comprehending the, the, the settling power of the love of God when it, when it becomes truth in our soul, when it becomes true to our hearts. So I'm of the opinion that we need always to continuously come back and uh, approach the word. And, and I've made it a, a constant hobby. I've got a few biblical hobbies, a few things that I study continuously. But one of them is the affections of God. I've just made it a hobby just to study his emotions. What does he think? What does he feel? Anytime it talks about his love, his delight, his desire, Whatever it's on his mind, his thoughts, his affections, I, I just pay attention to those things. And I will find myself often in study where I thought I was going to read certain points and I'll, get, I'll just get hung up thinking about the way God thinks and the way God feels. And I'm, I've been on a journey for years now, uh, just as the Lord has continued to explain to me through the scriptures and by his spirit teaching me, the way he thinks and feels. And I, I want to be acquainted with his thoughts and his emotions. I don't want to just sort of, you know, know the verses and kind of pair them back without any real living understanding. I want to be like Moses who said, you know, uh, the, he said of Moses that the children of Israel, they knew the acts of the Lord, but Moses knew his ways. Knew his ways, which that gives you a whole different picture. Moses kind of knew what was in the mind of God, what was on the heart of God, the way God was thinking and feeling about the different scenarios. And so the the study of God's emotions and his affections, it's a hobby that I want to, I want to offer to you. I want to encourage you in your personal study and prayer just to, you know, you might take seasons where you study stuff, but just as a a centering, uh, a truth to come back and study the emotions of God and his affections for you, it will transform your heart. It's why you were made. In a nutshell, it's why you were made. You want to know your purpose, you're made to be loved. There, I settled it. Quit worrying about it. 
It really is. I mean, it, it, it's the truth, and, and I, can, I can support that real intensely, uh, biblically and theologically, but it, and we will. We'll go into some of those thoughts in the next few weeks. But uh, the, the concept of uh, knowing that the reason why you're breathing, the reason why you're breathing is because of God's delight and affections for you. It changes so much of the way you perceive reality. So just a few thoughts on why we study the emotions of God. I mean, I've just kind of said a few, but that settling effect in your soul, it has a powerful settling effect in your soul. Most humans are striving. They live their life striving. And if they're not striving, most of them have given up. The group that's not striving is the group that's put themselves on the bench. You, you, fi- you very rarely find humans settled in the truth of God's affections. When you comprehend God's affections and his love for you, it causes you to cease striving. You don't strive for, for human praise. You don't strive for position. You say yes to the Lord with a settled soul. You, you can obey the, the, the direction of the Holy Spirit with a settled soul knowing that God likes you and he's for your good. And so then the way that you do the rest of of everything you do in life, it comes as a byproduct of the, the one truth that's settled and that's that God loves you. That has such settling power. And, and so then what people tend to do is they live their life trying to either, um, Prove to people that they are uh, uh, worthy to be, you know, promoted or acclaimed or affirmed, or they live their life uh, trying to prove to God that they're worthy to be loved. Christians, they 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 live they live with a religious. It's like this. They they think of God as this taskmaster whipping them, demanding them to do more. They've got this. It's a religious spirit that that causes them to live their life always trying to attain and do something for God, never settled in their soul that God loves them. I lived like that for many years, always doing more, always doing more, trying to gain God's approval. It's kind of a sad way to live because you're trying to get into a room that you're already in. It's called accepted in the beloved. (laughs) And so people live either trying to uh, uh, um, get men's approval or trying to get God's approval. But when you get the revelation of God's delight for you, it settles your soul down and you realize that you've achieved the highest pinnacle of human achievement and that's called accepted in the beloved. Y'all are almost hearing me. Accepted in the beloved is the highest pinnacle of human achievement. Not going to the moon or landing somebody on Mars or being the president of the United States or making a million dollars. All of those are infinitely inferior to being accepted and beloved by God, and guess what? You've already got that. Not because of something you've done. Freely given. 
Most of us, that just doesn't work well for us. We just feel like, no, I got to, you know, I'm going to work for it. I'm not going to take anything I haven't earned. Well, Christianity doesn't work like that. Christianity works like this. You can't earn it. But because he likes you, he gives it to you. Don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. Because if somehow you deserved God's love, that would speak of your own inherent achievement or your own sort of worth that's something you can say that I've done this, therefore you have to. We don't deserve his love. He doesn't even need us. He just wants us. He just wants us. And we can expect his love because of who he is. He is love. When these things land in your soul, all of a sudden, you begin to perceive life differently. Stuff that you used to strive about and perform for. You don't do that anymore because you, you, you have a, a settling in your soul. And it's the delight of God over you. You wake up in the morning understanding that the highest achievement in humanity, you've already attained that. That's God's love, and it's only going to get better and better and better forever. And so then everything you do in life, whether it's resist sin, do a ministry, work a job, love your family, go to school, whatever you do by the direction of the Lord, that is not as as if you're trying to do something to get his approval. You do it as an overflow of having his approval. So you, you get to do life with God. It's, oh, I get out of bed in the morning. Oh, you love me. Oh, so this morning then, I get up to speak out of the overflow of the fact that God loves me, not to get your approval or anyone else's approval or to attain a ministry position or expand my sphere. I, I do what I do because he loves me. And me and him get to do this together. So whatever you are obedient to the Lord, whatever direction he leads you, you don't do it like, okay, God, I'll do it. And if I do this, you'll like me. Or if I don't, you're going to smash me. It's not like that. He goes, I love you. I go, I love you. He goes, I love you. I go, I love you. Oh, we love each other. He goes, good. Hey, would you do this? I go, of course. We get to do this together. This is fun life. It changes your whole perspective Settles you on the inside. And if you realize that God's love and you moving back and forth in love with God is that highest level of achievement for humanity, then your identity isn't based on whether or not you quote-unquote succeed or not. So many people, their identity is up and down. They feel good about themselves or bad about themselves based on their performance. Listen, your performance says nothing about who you are. The truth of your identity is determined by God's affection and love for you. The fact that you're accepted in the beloved, that is the anchor to your identity. Everything else is simply byproduct. Whether you soar and things go great for you in your job, your ministry, your school, whatever, or whether you do terrible, 
That does not determine your worth. Your worth is determined by the proclamation of God over you. And the proclamation of God over you is accepted and loved. See how that can settle your soul? Because then if you're doing great or doing horrible, you can still come back to this. You like me. Maybe nobody likes you. He likes you. Maybe you blow it so big. It's just like you totally messed up. And everybody's like, boo you. You, you. I mean, even in that moment, you go, here I am. He goes, I like you. You go, but I did terrible. He goes, I still like you. That has an anchoring effect on your soul. And most people, they live outside of that reality. They live striving. They live worried. They live performing to try to get approval, to get people's affections, working for someone's affections or working for God's affection. And they spend all their emotional energy. And they're exhausted. Think about the amount of emotional energy you could save if you didn't worry about what one other person thought. Oh, come on. Didn't care about what one other person thought. You were totally alive in God's delight and smile over you. Didn't worry about whether your performance was good or bad because you know God likes you anyway. Weren't trying to to perform for God religiously because you know he likes you. What if every day you woke up with that settling your soul, you'd have a lot more energy. <laughs> you would. I mean, I know eating right helps having good energy, drinking lots of water. But I tell you, we stress out and it wears us out. We don't have energy to give and to love and to serve because we're so worried about trying to perform. Your performance does not dictate your identity. God's love is the proclamation that declares the truth of your worth and your identity. So that's why intimacy is important. It also changes the way you treat others. When you get it, that you are you with all of your warts and God likes you anyway, you end up being a lot more gracious with people. We love him because he first loved us, but it also translates, we love others because he first loved us. When you get it, that God has been totally gracious with you, has let you off the hook, has, has accepted you and loved you and is affectionate for you, you end up having a ton more grace for the person that pushes your buttons all the time. You get to this place where you can actually enjoy people in the middle of their weakness because you are, you're in revelation that God enjoys you in your weakness. No, really. I mean, the person is an absolute stinker. My boys, uh, they re- if they read a certain many, uh, number of hours, we get free tickets to Six Flags. And uh, it's my great pleasure to be able to take them to Six Flags in 100 degree weather. So we did that a week and a half ago. We got free tickets. Every, they even give you the teacher. And I'm not, my, my wife, she's the home run hitter, homeschool teacher. But I got to get in on the free ticket. Then again, the eight-month pregnant woman trekking around Six Flags in 100-degree weather is probably not cool. So I'm in. 
We go to Six Flags. We're waiting in line for the Superman. And uh, there's this young man behind me, and he is just sour. He's just a sour puss. He's just complaining. Man, I hate Six Flags. Man, we're waiting too long. And he's just saying yucky kind of stuff. And there's me and my son, and this little guy just won't quit. He just won't quit complaining and being sour. And I'm, and I'm, I mean, I'm revving up my self-righteousness. Because I'm ready just to pound this little man for just being a punk, basically. And while I've got the, the, the trigger cocked on my self-righteous rebuker, the Lord just goes, what, like, what are you doing? I'm like, he's a punk. He goes, have you looked in the mirror lately, little buddy? And what happened was that they were changing the trains, and so we were waiting in line and a little extra long time, and this little guy was right behind us, him in his mouth. And I'd love to say I passed with flying colors and turned around and just dispensed grace to him. But I didn't. I, I, I just, I was, I was really more aware of my own yuck than being able to even say something kind to him. But I did end up praying for him. I just said, Lord, this young man doesn't know you. And, and, and then I got to the place where God goes, and you have no idea how much I like him and his dreams for, that the dreams I have for him. And I was like, that's right. You like him and you've got dreams for him, even if he's being ridiculously whatever. Lord, bring him into your dreams for him. And I, and I was like trying to get a word of knowledge for him, but I still was probably a little bit up on my high horse. So the Lord wasn't, you're not, I wasn't the vessel at that moment. The Lord wanted to use, I don't think. But the point is, when you really understand God's love for you and your weakness, you can actually get to the place where when the person is in their weakness, in their you know, ugliness and sin, you're actually delighting in them because of God's delight in them and his dreams for them. Changes the way you deal with people. You'll be a lot more gracious with people, a lot more kind towards people. You'll extend to them mercy, realizing you've been extended mercy. You'll be patient with people when you weren't, realizing that God is so patient with you. Changes everything. Changes how you live, how you perceive others. Changes the way we look at ourselves, the way we look at God. Changes everything. That's why we have to stay rooted in this. That's why Jesus in John 15, 9 said, abide in my love. He, he, he never said graduate from the revelation of love. He said abide in it. And that's critical for believers. Because most of us, we get it. We go, okay, Jesus loves me, this I know. Okay, the Bible tells me so. I got the song. Okay, let's move on to whatever, whatever, whatever. And we don't understand that it's the revelation of love that, that compels and constrains and controls us. It centers our, our whole existence. That flowing back and forth in love with God is what centers our whole existence. And from there, everything else is simply a byproduct. Love with God is the main thing. The other stuff is the byproduct. I don't think y'all heard that point. Love with God is the main thing. Everything else you do is the byproduct. It's the overflow. 
So we're just going to talk about this for a few weeks. Uh, Ephesians 2. One thing I realized is the, the most vivid backdrop to where we see the love of God the most, the most keenly, where it's the most, where, where it's the most vivid, where it pops the most, the most vivid backdrop is the revelation of our own sin and helplessness and brokenness. When we really get a right perspective on how lost we are without him, the truth of his affections, they pop off the canvas. Just like when you get good contrasting colors and you go, oh, this one's not here. But man, you put that color in front of this color and it pops. The love of God pops the most against the backdrop of our state without him. And you see it scripturally. This is the way that Paul deals with it. It's the way Jesus deals with it. When he's talking about love, oftentimes you'll find that right before it, he talks about the the truth of our fallenness. And so that contrast is uh, really, really important if we're going to comprehend love. Let me, uh, let me uh, illustrate that. Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. If we start there, we go, God, he's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. That's good. But if you start at verse 1. And you... In the New King James, it says he made alive. That's not actually in the text. NIV and NIS don't even have that there. It just says, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who's now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh, and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as everyone else, just as those that are caught in sin right now, just as the others. You, he made alive. You who were dead. You who were an enemy. You who were walking according to the, the, the prince of the power of the air. That's, that's Satan. You were children of wrath. You were a child of wrath. Verse four, but God. Is rich in mercy. <laughs> See how it pops a little bit more? <laughs> when you think about the, the truth of our state without him. I was thinking about this. I was, I was just meditating on those first three verses. And it took me to Romans 5. And just wanna, I just want to paint the backdrop just for a moment. Before we journey off into the truth of his affections. Because it's an important backdrop that we've got to have in mind as we're thinking about his affections. We hear a lot, you are sinners, you're da-da-da-da-da. I mean, we've heard that message, but I think the, uh, the tone has been a little bit off at times. We've heard that, you know, repent, you're going to hell message, but I think the tone that it's shared in the scripture isn't with that angry railing uh, kind of attitude. I, I think it's got a different flow to it. I think that uh, the way that Paul uses this, 
is not to uh, assail people with, with scriptures, not to just nail people and beat people up, but it's to clarify the truth of God's love. And I was thinking about myself, thinking about these words. Just slowly work through it. You were dead in trespasses and sins. You once walked according to the course of this world. You know, I remember when I first got saved and being so delighted that I wasn't going to hell. And then I remember a short time after that when things got difficult. How many had that experience? You know, you get saved and it's like, yeah, everything's wonderful. Look, the sky's blue, trees are green. Whoo, yeah. And then about, I don't know, a few months later, you're like, man, this is hard. <laughs> like, this isn't easy. Because you find the flow of the world system, the course of this world has a current, popular opinion. We call it the sway of the enemy. There's, there's so much in popular opinion that's just the influence of the enemy in society. There's a course of this world system. And when you realize, man, I'm, I'm going the other direction. Everybody else is flowing this way. I'm going this way. And it's unpopular. All of a sudden it gets difficult. And I can remember as a young Christian having these thoughts thinking, man, I just wish I never knew. This is too hard. I would rather have just been, you know, the, the proverbial ostrich with his head in the sand than have to deal with like this whole cosmic drama that's playing out in heaven and hell and salvation. I was like, you know, just because of the, the, the challenge of standing against the course of the world. I think about that. I think about how before I knew Jesus, before I got saved, man, I was going to hell fast, doing my best to get there. I told the story last night. There was a local church that was in a building project near my house when we were growing up. And me and my friends used to go over there and because they were in the building project, the, the, nobody was there. So we would go over there and bring our beers and, and bring our drugs and try to desecrate that place by partying on the church property. And I remember standing there in that church steeple. We'd climb up to the top of the steeple. And, and I remember raising my fist against God. Saying, if you're real, kill me. You must not be real. You have no power. You've done nothing. And just taunting the Lord with hatred and vileness in my heart. And that act, I mean, that so illustrates these verses. Maybe you never did that. But do you comprehend that without Jesus, we're all in the same boat? I mean, that's massively, massively important. Without Jesus, we are the, the, the cancer patient in, in the fourth stage with no hope lest a miracle comes. I mean, without Jesus, we are dead in our trespasses. Romans 5, he says, helpless, unable, unable to do anything for ourselves, unable to save ourselves. We can't make it better. By nature, it says, children of wrath. In Romans 5. And here in Ephesians. We walked according to the prince of the power of the air. Think about that. 
You're like, well, I wasn't worshiping the devil. Well, you were flowing by the influence of the enemy. 1 John 5, 19 says, all the world lies under the sway of the evil one. Think about that. The whole world system lies under the sway of the evil one. You say, well, I, I wasn't worshiping the devil. I was a, no, 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 no. If you weren't born again, if Jesus wasn't your Lord, you were under the sway, the influence of the enemy. We got to stare at this. We got to comprehend the truth of our own sinfulness and our state without him. Walking according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who works in the sons of disobedience. Look at, Paul puts himself in there, and whom also we all once conducted ourselves. Paul, the Hebrew Hebrews, is a Pharisee of Pharisees, keeping the law to the, to the highest level. If anyone could proclaim his own righteousness, the apostle Paul could, murdering Christians because he believed them to be infidels and blasphemers. He says, I was walking according to the course of this world. I was walking by the influence of the power of the prince of the air. I was fulfilling the lusts of my flesh. Oh, man. Helpless. I don't know what your story is, but I think about mine. I go, oh man, I was helpless. I was lost. Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, by nature children of wrath, just as the others, just as those who are there now is the point. Romans 5 says, we were helpless. Helpless. And then we get verse four. But God. But God who is rich in mercy. See, mercy isn't for those that are doing okay. Mercy is for those that have done wrong. See, you can't be merciful to somebody if you always are in agreement with them and they never do you wrong. Mercy is for the one that has treated you poorly, that has done you wrong. Then you can actually be merciful. We want to think of ourselves as merciful without even having ever had to have an opportunity to be merciful. Being merciful is when you do something good to somebody who's done something bad to you. Think about that for a minute. You know, when somebody does us wrong, we start pulling out all the justice scriptures. <laughs> but mercy is when they do you wrong and you extend kindness to them anyway. God who is rich in mercy. Why are you so rich in mercy, God? Because of his great love with which he loved you. Oh man, it just pops right there. Because I look at my life before Jesus and I go, oh man, there's no way. We just had our class reunion for my high school. I, I wasn't able to go, but I was communicating with some of my friends. And uh, I mean, I just basically had to explain to them how I am a preacher now. I mean, it's like, is this the same Billy Humphrey? I'm like, that's me. 
because I was so far the other way. But God, who is rich in mercy, God, who is rich in mercy. So I don't know where you came from. Where'd you come from? Think about where you came from. Let, you know, let me, let me just paraphrase uh, parentheses. So often we read the scripture and apply it to others. It impacts us when we'll apply it to us. You know, you see my point? So often we're thinking, yeah, that person over there, they really need to hear this. It's good for them. Or it's just the nebulous them out there somewhere. It's just truth up in the air somehow. It impacts your heart when you apply it to you. I was dead in trespasses and sin. I was walking according to the prince of the power of the air. I was fulfilling the lust of the flesh and of my mind. I was an enemy of God. I was by nature a child of wrath, just as those that are lost today. I was just as bad as all of them and maybe worse than many. And my state spiritually was exactly the same, without hope, without God in the world. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved me. Let it land on you. You didn't get here by yourself. You didn't get here because you were good. You didn't get here because you knew the right answer. You got here because he loves you. You got here because he's rich in mercy. God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved me. So you can just stay there for a while. Because of his great love with which he loved me. He changed my life. He set me free. I was bound in sin. I was stuck. I couldn't choose righteousness. I, was, I, I didn't even know the right answers. Lost. I love how we said, I found Jesus. No, I beg to differ. He found you. He wasn't lost. Man. See, when we get a revelation of God's love against the backdrop of our unworthiness, something happens. Gratitude. Gratitude explodes in our hearts. And I believe that's what Paul is aiming for here. I don't believe Paul is trying to bang believers over the head and go, you're bad, really bad. I, mean, I don't think he's trying to do that. I think he's trying to bring us to gratitude-based obedience because of love. I know this is a simple message. This is a simple message of the cross. But beloved, what else are we going to talk about? Five steps to human success? There is no steps to human success. The cross is the only step to human success. God dying. God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved me. I want to give you an assignment this week. I want you to take Ephesians 2, verse 4, and for half an hour, stare at it, meditate on it, think about it. Paint the backdrop of Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Think about where you were before, and then let Ephesians 2, verse 4, settle on your soul. God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved you, See, 
when I was shaking my fist and assailing God and doing everything I could do to go to hell, I, I didn't deserve any of this, but he's merciful. God who's rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead, trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. So in verse five and in verse six, he says two things that God does because of his great love. This is where it goes. Though we didn't deserve it, though we were lost, though we were wicked, God loved us anyway. He loved us and was rich in mercy toward us. Though we were weak and helpless and without ability, he loved us. And then he does two things. Because of his, his great love with which he loved us, number one, even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. He put life back in us. He made us alive together with Jesus. You and I aren't dead anymore. We're alive together with Jesus. You, you, you know, sometimes you would, you would almost think that believers, that we think we're still dead. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we're alive together with Jesus. <laughs> Alive together with Jesus. Resurrected. Your spirit is no longer dead. You're alive. You're alive on the inside. God, the Holy Spirit, is inside of your spirit, quickening your spirit and giving life even to your mortal body. Life has come into you. You now live by a new law. It's no longer the law of sin and death, but the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Life is ours because God raised Jesus from the dead. And if you believe that, life comes into you. Man, you can wake up in the morning and you're like, I'm alive today because Jesus is alive. I have new life because Jesus is raised from the dead. I'm a new creation because Jesus was resurrected. I am alive. He made me alive. Man, you can have a good day that way. You can have a good day that way. We just forget so great a salvation. You're alive, man. You're alive. Man, we were dead and we're alive. Ha! Man, that's good. Oh, man. I'm just, yeah. I'm getting it myself. Even when we were dead, he made us alive. By grace, you've been saved. This is powerful. And then this next verse. This is the one that I want to base the whole series off of. And I don't know how many weeks I'm going to do this. Next week we've got the conference and, and I've got a baby coming. But we'll, we'll talk about this for a few weeks. My wife is going to give birth, not me. But I can't wait till she comes, by the way. Just a side note. If you don't know, I've got three boys and we've got a girl on the way. And it is going to be awesome. <sighs> okay. Side journey. Uh, but this is the verse. This is the one where God rocked me a few weeks ago. He raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So I'll tell you what happened. I was sitting there at the end of one of the awakening services and there was a power something happening over in this area, a swirl of about 30 people and the power of God was hitting everybody. And I walked over in the middle of it and I was like, oh, this is cool. And I just wasn't feeling anything. And I was like, well, Lord, well, I'll just go sit down. 
and meditate on my favorite verse, John 15, 9. As a father loved me, I have loved you, abide in my love. And I'll break it down a little bit, maybe in a week to come or a couple weeks. What the Lord began to download to me, but I'm, I'm meditating on John 15, 9, and it begins to open up to me. I mean, I've, I've meditated on that verse, I mean, probably hundreds of times, for hours at a time. And there I am, just once again, and boom, the spirit of revelation comes on me. It comes on me so strong, I'm gasping. I'm going, oh my, oh my gosh, oh my God. I'm gasping because of the light that's hitting my soul. So fathers love me. I've loved you. Abide in my love. And the Lord begins to take me on a journey through the scripture. In my mind, I'm just, the, the verses are just coming. Boom. I mean, I'm having a Bible study. Me and the Holy Spirit. Bam. Verse after verse after verse. And he takes me to Ephesians 2. Made us alive together. And I love this. And raised us up together. And seated us. Made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Beloved, that's in past tense. And it's speaking about our position spiritually as it relates to the Godhead. And God begins to unpack to me once again the purpose for which he created humans. Think about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Think about the perfection that they have experienced from eternity past. Before there was creation. Before God ever said, let there be light. He's eternal in his existence. He's been from forever. And forever he's been love. And forever he's been pleasure. And forever he's been beauty. And the Godhead together forever experienced perfect love, pleasure, and beauty within itself. Unbridled and unhindered perfection in love and beauty. The Father to the Son. The Son to the Father. The Spirit to the Father. The Spirit to the Son. Everybody flowing together in the Godhead. And perfection of love and beauty at the highest level. And God, it says in Ephesians 1, that because of the good pleasure of his will, he looks within himself and gets creativity from himself. And because of the good pleasure of his will, he creates you and I. He does all of creation because he looks inside himself and says, what would please me the most? The good pleasure of his will. He goes, what do I want that will bring, bring pleasure the most? And he does Genesis 1. He does Genesis 1 because he wants to invite humanity into the pleasure and the love that the Godhead shared amongst itself. He wants to open the door of fellowship into the holy. Forever and ever in eternity past, it was just the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together in perfect love and beauty and harmony. And God says, according to the good pleasure of his will, he looks inside himself and he says, I want to love others. I want to offer the love and the beauty that we share in the Godhead. I want to offer it to a humanity that could never attain it themselves. I want to bring others into the fellowship of the divine. 
He creates humanity. He creates the earth. He creates Adam. And he looks down through the generations. And he weaves together a thousand generations and makes the DNAs match perfectly. Why? So he can have you. Every parent who ever said their child was an accident is a complete fool. If you're here and you said that, I forgive you. I don't back off of that. There are no accidents. God is the one that puts the spirit in the man. God is the one. And he's dreamed about humanity from eternity past. And he said, I want to invite them in to fellowship and love and beauty. And so when Jesus comes, God in the flesh, God becomes a man. When he dies on the cross, man, because of his great love with which he loved us, because of his rich mercy, he takes you and I who are dead and he does this crazy thing. He makes us alive, but he doesn't stop there. He raises us up together with Christ and seats us where? In heavenly places with Christ. Where is Jesus sitting right now? At the right hand of the Father. What's he experiencing right now? The perfect fellowship that the Trinity has had forever and ever. Where are you right now? You're sitting here in the flesh but in the spirit you're seated where in heavenly places with jesus that verse is not mostly about authority it's mostly about intimacy you are created to experience the perfection of affection that the father the son and the spirit have shared forever you were created with god having this idea in mind that he would fling open the doors of the the fellowship that he experienced in the godhead and he would invite you in that's where you are now <laughs> that's where you are now Seated us in heavenly places with Christ. The way I picture it in my mind's eye, it's just so simple. So, so preschool. But I think of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Holding hands. I don't know if the Holy Spirit has hands. But I just picture it like they're holding hands in a circle praying and it's explosive and powerful and beautiful and majestic. Pleasure and glory and beauty and love at the highest level. The fellowship of the divine flowing, 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 flowing and I'm watching it and all of a sudden the father and the son, they drop hands, take a step back, they look at me and go, Billy, Come on in. Seated in heavenly places with Christ. Beloved, that will change your day. That'll change your life. No wonder Christianity is supposed to change your life. Because you are no longer walking. Think about, the, think about where Paul takes us from in about seven verses. Walking according to the spirit, the prince of the power of the air. Spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's where you are. And now you are seated in heavenly places with Christ. Experiencing the delight and the affections of the Godhead. Not as a spectator, but seated 
as a co-heir of the kingdom. That's not mostly about authority. It works for authority, but it's not mostly about that. It's actually mostly about love. Because of his great love, because of his great mercy, his riches of mercy and his great love with which he loved us, he did two things. He made us alive together, but he didn't leave us there. He raised us up and seated us. See, for a long time, and I'll land now, but for a long time, I thought of God's love for me like a child loves its puppy. You know, like a master loves its dog. If, I, if I'm a good dog, I get a treat. If I'm a bad dog, I get a whipping. I always just figured that I was so subservient to the Lord that, you know, I just always came to the throne. You know, we even, we even use the examples of like Queen Esther. She's coming in trembling, hoping that the, the scepter will be extended so that she's not killed. I kind of kind of always put myself in that same place. Like, okay, God, here I come again. I know you love me, but I sure hope you're not mad today. He goes, you don't get it at all. I didn't save you and raise you and seat you in heavenly places so you would think of yourself as some puppy or some subservient, you know, pauper that I've just allowed to be at my table. He goes, I made you a co-heir. I adopted you into my family. I made you my own, and I seated you with my son. And see, then we get the, the verses in John 15 and John 17. We get them more clear. As the Father has loved Jesus, he says, as the, Jesus says, the Father has loved me. Jesus says, I have loved you. In the same way that the eternal Father has loved the Son, the Son has loved you. And then in John 17, where Jesus is praying, he says, Father, that the world would know that you have loved my followers as you have loved me. And the Father has loved you. Beloved, he's loved you in the same way he's loved Jesus. The same measure, the same manner, the same extent, the same intensity, that eternal love that's been existent from before time began, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit shared in the Godhead. What did he do? He did the most unthinkable thing. He made you and I. Then he did the most crazy thing. He became a man. Oh, and then he did the craziest, crazier thing. He died. And then what did he do? He raised him up, he raised him up from the dead. Why? So you and I could be raised from the dead. Why? So he could seat you and I together in heavenly places with him. So you and I could experience love like he loves. I mean, dang. I might just preach this message again next week. Seated in the heavenly places in Christ. Not them over there. Not your friend who needs to really hear this message. You. This is you. He flung open the door of fellowship into the divine, the fellowship of the holy, he flung the door open and invited you in. He didn't invite you in as some puppy at the table. He brought you in and loved you the same way he's loved himself. This is who you are. That's why Paul says, having these exceedingly great and precious promises, let us resist all defilement of the flesh. 
having these promises to be adopted as sons, let us put off the sin that so easily ensnares. Let us cleanse ourselves. Why? Because you're seated there. Saying no to defilement because so, becomes so much easier when you comprehend that you've been granted access to the holy. It's the epicenter of power, the throne. The epicenter of power, the epicenter of beauty, the epicenter of pleasure. I was saying this a few weeks ago, you are right now seated at the pleasure epicenter of the universe. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand, pleasures evermore. Oh, these things are too lofty for us. They're not too lofty for us. We can get this. We can live in this. We can love God and love others. Alive in these truths. Amen? Let's stand. God who's rich in mercy. I feel like the Lord wants to invite you, several of you, into a season of just studying his affections, studying his emotions, basking in the message of intimacy, bringing you out of performance and, and praise of men and things of that nature. If you feel like the Lord is speaking that to you, I just want to invite you forward. I want to pray for you. I ask the Lord to release revelation to you. God's inviting you into a season of encounter as you study his affections. I've been in the most rich time maybe in my whole life as I've studied the affections of God. Maybe the most rich time of of revelation on the love message right now. It's just been powerful. I believe the Lord is inviting many into that. I think there's many. He wants to recalibrate your soul, recalibrate how you've lived and what you've focused on. So go just say, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. I just want to invite believers just to come and maybe just pray for these that are here and just ask the Lord to release revelation on them. Several of Several of you just want to invite you to come and just just pray for these in the altar.